ومن أحسن قولا ممن دعا إلى الله وعمل صالحا وقال إنني من المسلمين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته والحمد لله وحده والصلاة والسلام على من لا نبي بعده أما بعد uh, we are continuing after our hiatus for a few weeks, our regular programs, and inshallah today we will have our Q&A as usual. And today I begin my Q&A with a question from uh, Sister Zainab from Mumbai, India. MashaAllah, tabarakallah. Uh, may Allah help uh, your situation over there in that land. Uh, she emails and she says that sometimes uh, she participates in auctions that are done by lenders and sometimes banks uh, when they take possession of the object when the lenders are not able to pay off the loan. So the auction is then done, let's say for a car, maybe a house, maybe a piece of land. Uh, and so she's asking, is it permissible to participate in such auctions? Now, this question is actually composed of two separate questions. So let's start with the second one first, which is the auction. Then, this, then the first one will be banks doing auctions, which is slightly different than the, the concept as we will see. So the, the concept of auctions, having an auction, and of course uh, an auction is a mechanism of selling something where different buyers come together and they bid on the same item publicly. Everybody knows there's an uh, auction going on or you know a group of people can know there's an auction going on. And so the point is you know that the price is going to be not set. It is going to be given to the highest bidder and the auction will then be uh, sold or whatever the item is going to be given to the highest bidder. This uh, concept in Arabic is called, one of the terms for it is Bay' al-Muzayada. Uh, the, uh, the the sale in which people are bidding against one another, uh, higher bids, muzayada from ziyada, yani you're bidding against one another. And the vast majority of scholars of our tradition of all of the legal schools, this is the default position of the uh, madhahib, is that with minor differences of the conditions, but the default is that it is allowed, it is halal, that the concept of auctioning something off and of then selling the item to the highest bid, Bitter, it is something that the default position of the ummah, the majority of the ummah says it is allowed. The dissenting voices are small and we can uh, ignore them. And uh, the evidences for this are many. Of them is that it is authentically narrated in a very, very interesting and beautiful hadith that the Prophet ﷺ himself auctioneered off items. He himself took charge and he auctioned off items. And the hadith is reported in Sunan At-Tirmidhi. Anas ibn Malik says that, there was a man from the Ansar who came to the Prophet Sallallahu begging for some money. So the Prophet Sallallahu said, don't you have anything in your house? He said that, yes I do, O Messenger of Allah. Uh, I, I have a thin uh, uh, carpet, if you like, that I uh, use, I put on my floor, a rug, okay? And I have a, uh, a, a, an, an ornament, not an ornament, um, a mug that I can drink from, okay? So I have this in my house. I have a, uh, a carpet, I have a rug, you know, a thin rug that is there. And I also have, you know, a utensil that I purchased and I use it for my uh, drinks. So the Prophet Sallallahu said, bring me these two items. So the man brought these two items. The Prophet Sallallahu picked up these items and said, who shall buy these two items from me? So a man in the audience said, 
I shall buy it for one dirham. So the Prophet said, will anybody buy for more than a dirham? And he continued to ask, who will buy for more than a dirham? Then another man stood up and said, I shall buy this for two dirhams. So the Prophet gave him uh, these items for two dirhams. Then he turned to the Ansari and he said that, go and uh, purchase uh, with one of these dirhams food for your family. And with the other dirham, go purchase an axe and uh, bring it back to me. So he went and he bought food for his family and with the other dirham he purchased an axe, you know, to chop wood. And then uh, the Prophet Sallallahu when he brought him back the axe, the Prophet put it in his hand. He put it in his hand and he said, go and chop wood and sell wood. And I don't want to see you for 15 days. You keep on selling wood, keep on buying and, and, and cutting wood and selling wood. So the man came back after 15 days and he had owned now 10 dirhams. And some of these dirhams he had used to buy clothes, some of these he used to buy food for his family. So he explained to the Prophet ﷺ that in these last 15 days, he earned 10 dirhams from chopping wood and selling it. So the Prophet ﷺ said, for you to do this, go and earn your money. It is better for you than you go and you beg people. That will be a mark of shame on your face on the day of judgment. It is not allowed to beg except in three situations. And this is a famous hadith, you are not allowed to beg uh, uh, asking for money except in three situations. Number one is an extreme poverty that you cannot get out of. Uh, number two is that you have a debt that uh, is forcing you to basically uh, bankruptcy. You are completely out of money and you're owning lots of people in debt. In this case, you can call people and say, I need money, I, you can beg for money. And number three is that when you are taking part in what is called the blood field, i.e. you're settling the debt when a tribe has a member of a tribe has killed another tribe and they're going to go to war, something's going to happen and a man stands up and says, I will take care of the blood money. That's a lot of money. So when you are trying to bring reconciliation between two people, then you, you, will, you will need help from other people. Then you will stand up and say, dear brothers, you know, I'm bringing sulh between these two tribes. I need money for this. So this is a hadith. The Prophet allowed begging publicly in three situations. Uh, and I should say not begging necessarily, but asking for money. So you're allowed to stand up and ask for money publicly in three situations. Number one, when poverty is extreme and it is beyond your control, obviously what are you going to do? May Allah protect all of us that uh, people genuinely are that. And number two, uh, that the debt has overcome, you're, you're going to declare bankruptcy. And number three, when you are bringing sulh between people. The point being, all of this tangent because it's a beautiful hadith and I wanted you to all know this hadith. All of this tangent because what? The Prophet picked up these two items and he made an auction. Who's gonna buy this? One dirham. Who's gonna go more? Who's gonna go more? Who's gonna go more? Then he said two dirhams. Then he said gave it to him for two dirhams. The Imam al-Kasani, the famous Hanafi jurist, he comments on this, he says, the fact that the Prophet did this shows that it is permissible because he would never do something that is makruh. So the fact that he did it himself, it shows that it is permissible. And Imam al-Kasani said, this type of transaction has been commonly done throughout the lands, throughout all of our centuries, and it is well known. And you know, nobody has really stopped it. It is the part and parcel of how people uh, do business transactions, end quote. And we also have another tradition in Sahih Bukhari that a man passed away and he had a lot of debt and uh, in his will. And in his will he had said that, I have a slave who is going to be uh, freed. 
However, he had debt he had to pay off. And so when you have debt, this takes priority. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the children came, they said, we don't have money to pay the debt off. So the Prophet Sallallahu uh, himself, he uh, said, Man abd, who's gonna purchase this abd? Uh, and so a person stood up and purchased the abd. With that money, he then paid off the uh, debt. Imam al-Bukhari quoted this hadith under the title, the chapter of Bay' al-Muzayyad, the chapter of auctioning the chapter of auctioning. And Ibn Hajar comments, the fact that the Prophet Wasallam said, who shall purchase this abd, indicates he was offering to the highest bidder, so that the maximum amount of money can be given to the bankruptcy, to the debtors, to those that are uh, uh, due uh, money. And so this concept of selling for the highest price, it is well known, it is established in the Sunnah. Uh, the famous Tabi'i uh, Ibn Abi Rabah said that, the people that I saw in my lifetime growing up, and he grew up in the generation after the companions. He said, the people around me, I saw all of them uh, doing this type of transaction, and they didn't consider this to be problematic. And this is a report also in Sahih al-Bukhari. Therefore, the vast majority of scholars are pretty much uh, all of the madhahib, and you can say there's small groups of tabi'un and others, early scholars, they said it's not allowed. And the reasoning was also an innocent and good one. They said that the Prophet ﷺ forbade in an authentic hadith that you bid against the bid of your brother. And this is an authentic hadith. However, the prohibition of bidding against the bid of your brother, uh, it is easily understood that you do not bid against the bid of your brother once the bid of your brother has been accepted and there is an agreement and there is an understanding and before the transaction has occurred. So, simple example, the hadith applies in non-auction type of scenarios. So for example, uh, you say to your friend that I have a car for sale, do you want to buy it? And he says, yes. And so you agree to a price. He goes, I'll buy it for $5,000, okay? You say, khalas, next week, uh, you know, we'll transfer. I just need the car for a few days, we'll transfer. So we have agreed and everybody knows. Now another person hears and he goes, oh, 5,000? I'll pay it, I'll pay six to you. And so he's gonna go interfere after the agreement has been done. This was not an auction. This was an agreement, an offer was made, the offer was accepted, but the keys haven't been done. Now a third party comes and says, oh, I will pay six. What do you think is gonna happen? People are gonna be hurt, feelings are gonna be hurt. It will bring awkwardness. Why did you do that? Let it be, khalas, it was lost now. Don't get involved once the agreement has been made. So there is a hadith, do not bid against the bid of your brother. This hadith is not applicable to the auction. And we know this because the Prophet himself uh, did auctions. The point is when you're in an auction environment, everybody knows the point of that environment is to bid against each other. So the problem that will come when an agreement has been made and then you come and you say, I'm gonna bid against you, there's gonna bring uh, problems in ukhuwa. Islamic brother is gonna be hurt. And that's why it has not been allowed once there has been a verbal agreement. However, in an open auction where everybody knows they're coming to the table for an auction, there is no ill will in this regard and therefore it is completely permissible. And just FYI, uh, the Majma' Fiqh al-Islami, the Council of Islamic Jurists, which is the largest council, global council in the world. And it is one that I generally, when it comes to especially finance issues, I, I I'll generally like to follow this council so that I can say, hey, you know, they're the ones that said this, not me. Uh, in their annual meeting in 1993 in Brunei Darussalam, uh, they issued their fatwa, their decree, 
uh, in which by unanimous consensus they uh, allowed uh, auctions to take place with some basic conditions such as the item is known uh, and uh, the people know that it is an auction meaning that it's not two people who have agreed and then you come and outbid them no the context is there or it is explicitly announced that this is an auction and also of the conditions by the way this is an important condition that there should not be a fake plant amongst the crowd that is meant to increase the prices because what happens sometimes there's deceit and the one who's selling the item will plant a friend or a paid person to always edge up the price when reasonable, uh, when he thinks that he's gonna get more for it uh, so that the price can be jacked up and this is something that is not allowed. Also the fatwa has said, uh, the, the fiqh council has said that even if the auction is closed to a limited group of people or you have to pay to be a member to be in this auction, no problem, they're reasonable fees as long as there's no gambling because you're opening an option. It's not a gamble that you know you, you pay money and then uh, randomly one person is chosen, that's gambling. But if you pay to be a member of a certain club or you pay to be within an auctioneering group uh, uh, and to be a member of that group, uh, in and of itself this is permissible because you're paying for a membership. Once you're a member, now you can auction for an item and, and purchase it, uh, no problem. So all of this is permissible, inshallah. That was a lengthy answer so that inshallah I never have to go back to the question of auctions per se. That having been said, our sister from Mumbai says she typically goes to the auctions of banks. And this is where we go to another issue then, okay? So auctions is one thing, and auctions is halal overall. The second part, purchasing from a bank, an item that the bank has confiscated because of the default of the loan, because the bank has given a loan to the lender, uh, the lender has paid back a certain amount, and then the lender has uh, uh, been unable to pay, and so obviously the bank confiscates everything back, and then sells the item, and then takes the money. Now, overall, from uh, yani speaking uh, generically, from an Islamic perspective, Obviously, what the bank is doing is haram. There is no question about this. Any person who lends money, uh, if the lender defaults on the loan without an excuse, okay, you have the right to take him to court. You have the right for the court to force him by selling certain items, even if it is the item that he purchased, to give you your full money back. However, you do not have the right to take more than your money. And so what the bank does is a type of injustice that is explicitly haram because it is the height of injustice uh, to get a large portion from of the loan from the lender and then take even more by selling the item. Let me give you the standard example here in America that uh, a person uh, uh, takes uh, the loan for a house, okay? And let's just be simplistic and say the house is $100,000. So for 10 years, the man is paying, 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 and he pays back, let's say $60,000. After 10 years, he loses his job, and for three months, he cannot pay the loan. So for three months, if he is defaulting on the loan, the bank will repossess the house, okay? All of the 60,000 that the man has given goes to waste. The bank will then sell the house, typically for more than 100,000 because the price will have gone up. So even let's just say 100,000, the bank sells it. Even let's just say, which is not the case. Typically the bank will make a profit. Doesn't matter profit or not. The point is the bank will get, let's say 100,000 from selling. The bank already has taken 60,000 from the lender. So the bank has a grand total of $160,000 and the lender goes away with nothing. 10 years 
use of paying back literally flushes down the toilet and goes to waste just because the poor man lost a job, he couldn't pay for three months. What the what the, uh, what a height of injustice here, right? How much dhulm, and that's why the Sharia does not allow interest loans. It is. Uh, the height of injustice, it is a type of dhulm. Even if the person agrees for it, it is not something that is allowed. Now, for the bank to do this with the lender is not allowed. For you to give a loan and then take back more than the loan. And by the way, if you were to give a loan, the man purchases something, he cannot pay it back, you sell the item, you take the default. So in this case, you would take 60,000 that he has paid you for the house, then you would take 40,000 from uh, the, the, the house. And if there were fees involved by going to the court, you may take the cost of the fees so that you don't have to pay the lawyer's fees and whatnot. But you cannot pocket a dime more than the 100,000 that you gave the person. It's a loan, it's not a business. In Islam, loans and businesses are two separate transactions. You do not become rich via loans. Loans are not a business mechanism. This is the fundamental difference between Western capitalism, between the economic system of John Smith and, 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 and Western Western capitalism versus the Islamic Sharia. We do not make a business of giving loans. Loans is an act of charity, an act of compassion, an act of kindness. You give a loan because somebody's in a difficult situation and he must pay the amount back exactly. And if he wants to gift you without any agreement that he's going to give more, that is sunnah. So it is sunnah to give a hundred thousand and then some gift or something that, you know, just take this because jazakallah, not put in the contract. The point being, it is haram for a lender or a bank to take more and to then confiscate and then sell and take all of this. However, and this is where we get complicated. So I hope you're paying attention after all of this, right? This is a multi-layered question. I'm deconstructing it so we understand how we approach this issue. Auctions are halal. Banks repossessing houses and taking the entire amount of the loan plus the amount of the house is haram, okay? Now, put the two together. You have something the bank has done is haram. You have something the bank is going to do that's halal, which is auctioning, okay? Can you as a third party, you're not the lender and you're not the lendee, you didn't get the money, you didn't take the money. You are simply wanting to buy a house and you like this house, you find who owns it. Oh, the bank owns it because the bank repossessed it because the person defaulted on his loan. So you're buying the house and you have a clean, any simple transaction. Let's not get into the issue of mortgages right now. That I gave a whole longer question about that and you can listen to that Q&A that I've, I've done as well. Let's just say you have 100,000 and you wanna purchase it clean from the bank. One transaction, you give the money, uh, even if it's a, you know, a, 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 an auction. Can you purchase the house that was acquired via haram through a halal means? In other words, we can, we can uh, uh, rephrase the question and that is that, this is a really weird way to phrase it, does the, listen to me now, does the haramness of the house remain and persist after the bank acquires it such that it is haram for you as well to buy or the haram sin is on the bank and now it is halal for you to come in and then purchase from the bank via an auction. See, this is where it gets a little bit complicated and of course you're gonna have, you know, a number of voices here. I'll just be very simplistic for the purpose of this Q&A and say that there is a much deeper discussion here and there are many scenarios and expectations and exceptions, sorry, not expectations, exceptions beyond the scope of our Q&A. But to be uh, simplistic, 
the position that I advocate, which would be the position of the majority of scholars to the best of my knowledge, and it is not the only position, is the following. When a specific item is acquired via dhulm and complete haram without any sem semblance or shubha we call it, without any ambiguity that it is clear cut dhulm and haram, and you are aware that this has been acquired illegally, then it is not allowed for you to purchase it. Simple example, you know for a fact that a particular person is selling you, let's just say uh, a used iPhone, a used Rolex watch, right? Dubious character, and for whatever reason, let's just not get into how you know, you know for a fact that he stole this watch. He stole it, he broke into somebody's house, or he pickpocketed, and now he's selling you this item on the street for a measly price. Can you say, I didn't steal the iPhone, he stole the iPhone. I didn't steal the watch, he stole the watch. No, you cannot. If you know for certain or with a fairly yani, uh, reasonable amount of certainty, so there are dubious characters in dubious places, you know, they, they are selling on the black market, and you know that this has been acquired via blatant haram, i.e. breaking and entering, or stealing, or pickpocketing. There is no ambiguity. This is clear-cut injustice, and the item is haram, and it will remain haram for those who know it is haram. Now obviously, if you don't know, and somebody whom you think is honest has a watch and he sells it to you, obviously you don't have to do a, a background check and a survey, I and mean, it's not your business. He has an item, he sells it, okay, you're scot-free. But if you know that the item is haram, and it is stolen, and it is not acquired legally, then you are not allowed to acquire it. It is not legal Islamically, i.e. in the eyes of Allah, that money is haram, and the watch is haram, and if you own it, it is not your own. You do not own it. You may think you own it, you do not own it, because it was never allowed to be owned by the thief in the first place. So, the haramness of the watch remains haram, because you know that it is illegal, and it is uh, uh, stolen, and so you cannot purchase it. However, when there is an ambiguity, we call it a shubha, when there is a type of uncertainty in this regard, then in this case, the haramness of the item does not necessarily transfer after every transaction. So in this particular case, what the bank has done is haram, to sell the, 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 the uh, house, take all the money from the lender and uh, you know, from the uh, sell of the house and to make a profit off of the loan. However, the one who took the loan, the one who borrowed the money, entered into this contract knowing that if I don't pay three times, the bank will repossess the house. And therefore, he might be angry, he's, of course he's gonna be angry, but he's not gonna challenge this in a court of law. He's not gonna say that, oh, uh, you know, I mean, he could say it's a very unethical, very wrong, but he knows deep down inside, he agreed to these conditions, right? And so this is a very important point because some of our brethren, may Allah Azza bless their sincerity and whatnot, but in their sincerity and idealism, they they think that fiqh is yani, uh, very pietistic in this regard. Yeah, yeah, my dear brothers and sisters, if you were to live like, like life like this, you yourselves would not manage your own daily transactions. The sharia has come to be a lived reality, and that's why uh, you read yani, the books of fiqh, and, and there are actually PhDs done about the issue of haram money, when does it become halal and whatnot. Yani, if you were to do this, then Perhaps every single dollar bill you touch has been involved in a haram transaction. What are you going to do then? So the point being that 
fiqh is a little bit more mature and sensible than the piety of Muslims that sometimes might not be within the bounds of the Sharia. Now, you say, I don't want to in get involved with banks. Good for you. I'm not telling you to go to the bank. If you want to say, I'm not going to get involved with buying and selling from the bank, the bank is an institution of injustice. Well, Zakallah khair, don't buy from the bank. But don't use your fatwa to extract, don't use your taqwa, excuse me, the whole pun is gone. Don't use your taqwa to extract a fatwa. Don't use your high level of taqwa to say it's haram for everybody to purchase from the bank. No, it is not. The bank has acquired the land in a manner that is definitely illegal in the eyes of Allah. But the man from whom it was acquired from, he agreed to this. And he knows he cannot challenge it. And therefore, the item shall return to the bank in terms of legal ownership, and the bank then has the right to sell it to a third party, i.e. our sister, um, what's her name? Our sister Zainab from, how can I forget? My daughter's name is Zainab. Uh, our sister Zainab from Mumbai, uh, she may participate in this transaction, and she may bid on a house or a car or a land or anything that the bank owns, knowing that the bank has acquired it via defaulting on the loan. And if she wishes to avoid getting involved with the banks, it is permissible and good. And I have no doubt saying it is better uh, for her and for all of you to have nothing to do with the bank. But it is not haram to purchase from the bank, uh, even though what the bank itself has done uh, was haram when it acquired it. I hope that inshallah uh, clarifies this issue and I hope that we, we broke it down for you. So to summarize in a nutshell, auctions are halal as long as simple conditions are met. Uh, and whether the uh, auctioned item is being auctioned by a bank uh, or by a direct uh, owner who actually purchased it completely legally, uh, it is permissible for you to participate in such an auction. However, uh, the item must be known. By the way, so I should mention here before I finish up, the item must be known, which means that, <clears throat> excuse me, which means that you cannot auction an unknown item. These days, uh, there are scenarios where unknown items are auctioned. For example, people ship massive boxes in containers of ocean containers, and then they don't pick them up. The containers are locked up. Or uh, people abandon warehouses uh, or storages that are locked up. And after the lease has expired, the owner has the right to then publicly open it up in front of everybody and auction it off. In this case, the people who are bidding on these boxes or these storage rooms, they don't know what is inside. And they're bidding anonymous, sorry, they're bidding, not anonymously, sorry. They're bidding uh, uh, on items, they don't know what they are. They're bidding on an uh, uh, unknown item, a box. What is inside the box? I don't know, but I'm gonna bid 50, 100. And this would be haram, because you cannot bid on an unknown item. In an Islamic land, if such a box or container is unclaimed, the court will open it up and try to find the, the, the people. If there is no paperwork and it is completely gone, then they're gonna record and make an announcement so that when the original person, if he ever comes back, he will be given the price. Otherwise, then it will be auctioned off and uh, they, they will have a mechanism of who will get that money, if it is the owners uh, of the storage or it is public wealth or whatever it might be. But it is not going to be for profit and you just uh, auction it off for the sake of auctioning. So I hope inshallah, that answers uh, this question. Our second question for today. The name has been withheld on request um, and you will see why. A brother writes to us from New Jersey. 
that he has an elder sister who has been trying to get married for many years. She is now in her 30s and for whatever reason, no suitable candidate has come in the past. However, uh, she has gotten to know somebody at work and uh, they have uh, spoken to one another and developed uh, a liking and now he has proposed for her hand. Our brother emails and says, this is the problem, that he seems like a good candidate, he seems to be a good Muslim, however, his father and her father, their brother and sister, his father uh, is not allowing this marriage to take place because the brother who's proposing is from another ethnicity. And he says, my mother and I think this brother is a good candidate, but our father is adamant that he doesn't want to marry outside his ethnicity. And also he says that he doesn't like the fact that his daughter found uh, this man on her own through work. Uh, he finds this to be Islamically awkward and he would rather that they go through family and friends. So he is saying, the question is, in this case, may I disobey my father? The brother is asking me, may I go against my father's wishes and take over the, the wilaya, become the wali for my sister, she's my elder sister. May I become the wali and have uh, this marriage take place. Now, this is a very, very sensitive question. And before I begin, I would like to state, I am speaking in generic terms. I'm not speaking to you, dear brother in New Jersey, or to any specific case. I'm speaking in generic terms for informational purposes only. I am not, and I never give specific verdicts about family situations and scenarios via this Q&A. How can I, when it is Islamically not allowed for anybody to pronounce a verdict on a particular family situation without listening to both sides? So whenever there's two people involved, you have your father saying something, you have your sister saying something, right? I don't know for sure, I'm hearing from you through your email, how can I pronounce a verdict without listening to the both of them? Therefore, the goal of my Q&A today is to educate and to increase awareness and to have more information that will give you options so that you can then check with people in your locality and ulama and scholars directly that you are in touch with and then see what is the best course of option. Also, I would like to state that I have given a much longer Q&A uh, about the uh, necessity for having a wali in a marriage and I encourage you to listen to that Q&A. In fact, may I even suggest you pause the video right here and now, go Google on YouTube somewhere, it's on this channel, on the same channel uh, that uh, does a woman need a wali for marriage? And I go over uh, the three main opinions. I will not go over those three opinions in a lot of detail today with their evidences because I have done that in a previous lecture. And I have said there are three primary opinions historically speaking. The first of them is that, and this is the default of the three madhabs, the majority of the three madhabs, the Hanbali, Shafi'is and Malikis, the default position uh, within these three is that a wali is required in all scenarios and the wali has the ultimate right of veto. If he doesn't want the marriage to take place, then the marriage will not take place regardless of if it is a previously unmarried or if it is a widow or divorcee. This is the default position, that's position number one. Position number two, which is a position found in the Hanbali school and the Shafi'i school, you find some people that have said this. Uh, as for the Maliki, I'm not sure, so I don't wanna, uh, my memory is failing me now, so I don't wanna say it, but I, I, I think it is also found in the Maliki, but it is not the default, and that is that uh, a previously unmarried lady, her wali has the ultimate right of veto. However, a married lady uh, who has now divorced or widowed, she may then marry with 
a wali, but the wali becomes a technicality. So in both scenarios, there's a wali. However, for the one who has been married, and then she's divorced or widowed, the wali is basically a formality. And if the wali agrees, fine. If not, she finds another wali. She finds a cousin, a brother, an uncle, and she says, okay, you do my marriage. So she then really becomes the one in charge of her marriage, and the wali becomes a technicality. So there is a wali for the divorced or the widowed, but in reality, she appoints the wali. And so it's just a formality. This is the second opinion. And the third opinion, which is the default of the Hanafi school, is that uh, a adult lady, a baligha, does not need a wali regardless of whether she's um, previously unmarried or she is widowed or divorced. In all scenarios, she does not need a wali and she may uh, do her own marriage or she may appoint a wali. And if the wali doesn't like the one she's uh, getting, she may get another wali. So in other words, uh, for the Hanafis, uh, the wali is a formality in any situation. And so if she appoints one good, if not, she may directly uh, do the marriage herself and, and just like she does every business transaction herself, so she can do this. And I went over all of the evidences. This is not the time to get into this. And I said, in my humble opinion, uh, based upon uh, my study, uh, uh, and it's a study that is not just a few hours. This is a subject that every one of us who is a student of knowledge or a scholar, we spend years thinking about going over the evidences. Um, the that I adopted is the second one, which is that a previously unmarried uh, lady, she does require her wali's approval to get married. And a divorced or widowed lady, the wali becomes a technicality and just a formality. And if her father, brother likes the one that she wants to get married to, fine. If not, she may find another person and use that person as the uh, wali. Now, uh, by the way, I'd like to state that uh, that response that I gave it has proven to be one of my most contentious uh, responses in terms of the feedback that I get from the viewers. Uh, it's not my most uh, controversial, that must be the istighatha answer I gave, which generated Allah wa'alam what it generated, but that's a whole different point, let me not go down that tangent. But uh, this response generated a lot of emails from many uh, sisters who were uh, frustrated at my answer uh, and um, they did not appreciate my position and one of them said, and I, 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 I quote here, uh, that um, uh, she writes that uh, she's generally very impressed with my research and my practicality and taking into account uh, the times that we live in. Uh, however, she was sorely disappointed that for this particular question, it appears that I did not take reality into account. And she says, and I quote, the women of our generation are far more knowledgeable than the women of previous generations, and we need to rethink through this uh, ruling. So the long and short of it is this particular scenario where our sister is being denied a marriage uh, because her father does not like the ethnicity of the uh, the, 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 the person proposing. Uh, I, I say to this that even though my opinion is the same, and by the way, to answer the other concern that uh, I'm not taking uh, technicalities or I'm not taking realities into account and whatnot, I say that my dear sister uh, or sisters who are emailing me, we take culture into account where the Sharia allows us to take culture into account. We cannot take culture and simply negate uh, the texts of the Quran and Sunnah. Cultural uh, uh, realities are one of the sources, but not the ultimate source. And 
one of the principles, the maxims of fiqh says, al-urfu muhakkam, that culture shall be given ultimate authority. But our scholars say ultimate authority where the sharia allows it to have ultimate authority. And there's no question that uh, when it comes to this issue, the three madhabs, uh, other than the Hanafis, they interpret a large set of ahadith in a particular manner. Our Prophet said, hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim, that uh, the uh, widowed or divorced lady shall not be married until she gives the command that I want to be married to this man. And the single lady, the bikr, the unmarried lady, I should say, not the single, the previously unmarried, the virgin lady, she must be asked permission. They said, O Messenger of Allah, she is shy. In those days, women would be shy. They wouldn't say, yes, I married this man. So the Prophet said, her silence is her consent. Now this hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim, and there are so many other hadith as well. So my point is that uh, the notion of taking culture into account you're all correct in this regard, but we cannot ignore explicit commandments of the Quran and Sunnah. Culture cannot be used to override and veto the Quran and Sunnah. And uh, with utmost humility, and I'm willing to be corrected here, the claim that women of our generation are different than previous generations, and so we should rethink through, it seems a bit, uh, a bit of a stretch if you ask me. Uh, because what if one were to say, and I speak as a man here, what if one were to say that the men of our generation are in some ways, I'm speaking generically and, and uh, not every single man, generally speaking, so many men are worse than uh, uh, so many uh, of the previous generation and they're willing to take advantage in a way that previous generations would not. You see, the psychological purpose of the wali is to act as checks and balances because by nature, a woman is more innocent and trusting. I'm sorry to be stereotypical, we live in a time and place where anything you say about any gender is viewed as sexist or misogynistic or whatnot. You can no longer even talk about the gender differences. Okay, well, you not wanting to talk about it does not change the reality. And generally speaking, men are more interested in one particular thing, uh, and that is the intimacy aspect. And they're willing to get it, generally speaking, in ways that might not be the most ethical. Whereas women want the love and they want the protection and they want that relationship with the man that is more than just the, the, the intimacy and so they might be more trusting and innocent. So if the man acts in a decent manner, uses the right words, she might be swayed into thinking, okay, you know what, let me give him a little bit so that our bond is solidified. And this is where the wali comes in because the wali can understand the man. And uh, the man who's interested in the woman as well, when he knows there's a wali involved, even this person will act in a different manner. And by the way, for all of you who are gonna email me saying that I'm stereotyping, before you email me, speak to sisters who have been involved in Muslim matrimonial websites, okay? Speak to 20, 30, 50, 100 of them and get their feedback. What do they think of the men of our times and how honest and truthful they are? The purpose of the wali is to act as checks and balances. That's what it is. It's not that we are impugning the sister for not being um, fully capable. We are saying that when you bring the wali onto the picture, then the man who is serious, the suitor, will autumn, you will just by having a wali, 
I swear to you, you will eliminate 90% of the filth, 90%. Then you sift through the 10% that come to the table, you say, okay, now let us see. So I stand by what I say, that generally speaking, and the Sharia is based on generalities, there's always exceptions. Generally speaking, a wali is meant to protect the woman's interest and to bring the best person to the uh, table. And therefore, uh, due to the explicit nature of these ahadith, I personally, with utmost respect to my Hanafi brethren, and I know their evidence and I know their arguments and counter arguments. This debate has been going on for 1,400 years between the various madhahib. Uh, with utmost respect, because of the nature of these hadith, I am with the majority. However, the majority with the exception, and that is the adult lady who is divorced or widowed, uh, as I said, the wali does not have veto power. This is my, the position that I hold based upon uh, the ahadith in this regard. And I say with utmost humility and with gentleness to our sisters who don't like this position, with utmost humility, wallahi I'm not being sarcastic or facetious, please listen to me. I hope inshallah you are married soon. I hope Allah blesses you with sons and daughters. A time will come inshallah ta'ala when you will have a young daughter and that daughter will become a teenager and that teenager will become 19, 20, 21 years old. When that happens, I want you to remember what I'm saying now. Would you like that your 19 year old daughter and she's baligha, she's aqila, she's 19, she's not a child even though 19 is not fully adult. Would you like this 19 year old comes home one day and says, oh, I, I found a boy at my local cafe. You know, he is, you know, the darling of the Romeo of my dreams. Does he have a job? Oh, he's uh, gonna work so much. He understands me like nobody else. Why are you worried about money? Uh, does he have education? Oh, he's a visionary. Just wait until you have a daughter. And then you ask yourself this, this issue. Would you want your daughter, you know, to believe any man that comes up to her and, and talk about marriage? Or would you want some checks and balances? in this regard. So I'm quoting you one scenario, which is let's say a 19 year old sheltered lady who doesn't understand men. You're quoting me the opposite, which is an educated lady who understands men, 35, 40 years old, whatever. Situation is different, which is why I say very clearly, the default rule remains the same. And that is an unmarried lady, previously unmarried, I keep on saying unmarried, previously unmarried virgin lady requires her wali's permission. However, Listen to this now, now we come to your answer. Every rule has exceptions. And these exceptions can be put into place by those who are qualified to do so. So if the wadi acts like a checks and balances for the suitor and for his daughter, the government, the Islamic court will act as checks and balances for the wadi. So there is an authority above the wali that can take the wali status away and give it to somebody else. But it's not gonna come from the lady who herself is in love and probably cannot see uh, you know, uh, beyond uh, the relationship she's in. And it's not gonna come from the family members because there are vested interests and also it's gonna cause a lot of tensions. Rather, it will come from a third party. So in an Islamic land, this lady would have gone to the court of law and said, I have been waiting for a good suitor for 10, 15 years. Nobody has come. Now this man has come and my father is saying no for reasons that I think are petty. Then the court will look into it and then decide. We don't have a court in America. What do we do? You will go to a trusted sheikh of your community. And I say this and please don't read in some type of racism. I'm just being brutally honest here. Try to find a sheikh of your own ethnicity just because most likely your family and your father will listen to that person with more respect. 
That's the only reason. We need to be practical here. I'm not trying to bring in the race card. I'm trying to be practical solution that bring in somebody who understands your situation and predicament and understands the language of your father. Language, not just actual language, but the psychological language of your father. And then listen to this, try to work with and through your father. Don't just jump over him. Let me give you what you, if you were in my community in East Plano Islamic Center in Epic, you know what I would do? I would call the brother, make sure that you are, it, he is as he says, he's a decent man. I would call uh, the sister, make sure that everything is fine and legit. I would call you, make sure you are all in, in agreement, your mother and everybody. Then I would call your father and I would speak to him as a man to a man, a person to a person. Try to convince him. Don't just threaten him. Try to convince him, Ya Akhi, you know, you have to, you know, fear Allah, your daughter is not going to find a suitable husband. What are you going to do if nobody else comes? You work with him. You try to put soft pressure, hard pressure, emotional pressure. The daughter should also put some pressure. The, the son should put pressure. You work within the system. You don't just throw it away and say, Khalas, you're not going to be my wali. There are repercussions, social repercussions that are going to happen. You might break up the family uh, for this reason, my dear brother in Islam. Don't just say, my father is not going to be the wadi. Try to work within and on him and through him. Soften him up. Even if he grudgingly says yes, alhamdulillah, he has said yes. <laughs> End of story. Okay? You say to him, whatever needs to be said. Now, in case he is adamant and if this situation were as you describe, I'm saying big if, I don't know. If really it was as you described, me personally, if you came in my community and everything checked that yes, the brother is definitely a suitable partner uh, in many you know, Islamic ways and whatnot, and everything seems to be fine, then me personally, if your father was absolutely adamant, I would say humbly to your father, you may get angry at me, but I feel that you are doing vulm to your daughter and I will give the wilaya to your son. You must go to a third party, why? Because your father will be angry at me for a long period of time. May Allah protect me from any type of any, you know, anger or whatnot, but that's gonna happen. But we don't want him to get angry at you, dear son. You are the son. We don't want him to get angry at you. You have to take, you have to understand long-term. Inshallah, your father will cool down one day. But if you went against him, he might never forgive you. Whereas if you say, it's not my fault, the Shaykh did it let him be angry at me or the sheikh of your community because I'm not a family member. Let him say, oh, that person, even if he never talks to me again, I don't want him to not talk to you again. You understand this point here? My dear brothers, sisters that are involved in these things, understand this is a long-term issue. Marriages are big issues, not trivial issues. And that's why a wali is different uh, with my utmost respect to the madhab that says no wali for the sisters because she can buy and sell. Buying and selling is a one-off trade and transaction. Marriage is a communal societal family event and that is why the sharia requires a wali for the woman because what's going to happen in, in a divorce? She's going to come back to the wali, she's going to come back to the father. So a marriage is a very different type of scenario and therefore if the father is absolutely adamant in this regard, I would work with him and I would soften and threaten and harsh and, and, and whatnot, using different ways to do so. Go through cousins, go through uncles and relatives, try to get him to change. And if he still doesn't change, well then, a sheikh of your community, a person who is a part of your community that can speak to all of the parties concerned, he should look into this issue. And if he realizes, because in the end of the day, 
your father wanting somebody of the same ethnicity is a halal request per se. But when it is impeding on the rights of your sister and we have a crisis going on of spinsterhood, we know this, it is not just a problem, it is a crisis, it is one of the biggest problems of our American Muslim community, dare I say, to the best of my knowledge, Western Muslims overall, we are facing a crisis of marriage. That they're, the pool of eligible good bachelors is much smaller than the pool of eligible good sisters. For some reason, we don't have a lot of men who are intelligent and good-mannered and good deen and good jobs, whereas we have lots of sisters who are intelligent and good-mannered and good deen and good jobs. We have a lot of them. Why this is the case is beyond the scope of, of this talk and uh, wallahi, this is definitely a thing we need to address and our communities need to work on this. And there are many reasons, by the way. And by the way, it's not just a one-way street to be brutally honest here. Yes. A lot of it has to do with the brothers, but a lot of it has to do with the cultures we're living in and the rise of various isms out there that emasculate uh, uh, the, what it means to be a man. I'm being very brutally honest here. And also, by the way, let me get into trouble for saying this, but it needs to be said, the most obvious Islamic solution, unfortunately, uh, seems to be completely ignored, even though so many uh, un-Islamic uh, marriages uh, meaning society is allowing so many different types of marriage permutations and gender permutations. The most obvious and normal and natural and sunnah one, it is not even being discussed. So until all of you decide to understand that for the benefit of the ummah, we need to return to this reality that once upon a time uh, was the norm in many lands, we are facing such a crisis right now. And until we collectively decide that it is permissible and not politically incorrect, uh, until we do that, all of the sisters uh, are going to have to collectively do what they can. May Allah make it easy for you. But that needs to be said uh, very bluntly. Nonetheless, my point being, the issue of spinsterhood is indeed a problematic one. And the fact that, as you yourself said, you're waiting for so long for a good brother to come, now that you have found one, I think that it is too petty for your father to deny a marriage just because of ethnicity. And as for the notion of them liking each other from work, SubhanAllah, um, again, uh, this is where I think culture does need to play a role. So what if that happens? As long as they kept it halal, there's nothing wrong with having emotions and wanting to get married. It is only natural it will happen. And uh, from the seerah, uh, we learn that our mother Khadija radiallahu anha, she was the one who uh, felt that the Prophet was a good candidate. And she was the one who indirectly facilitated the proposal. There is nothing wrong. Uh, and your father needs to be told this gently, but firmly and bluntly, that there's nothing wrong as long as everything was kept good, there's no sin. And even if it wasn't kept fully good, may Allah forgive them, but that should not invalidate the marriage later on, yani that uh, the marriage is the marriage afterwards. So the point being that given the reality of spinsterhood and given that your sister, you're saying she's now reached an age where she might not have children if she doesn't get married now and you don't know when the next person is going to come, I think this is definitely a legitimate excuse to get an exception for the rule. It doesn't negate the rule. Every rule has exceptions. The rule is a previously unmarried lady requires her father's or her primary wali's approval. And uh, in case that is not given, she should respect that until uh, the, the person is found that meets all the criterion. However, if uh, the wali is being uh, unjust or foolish or petty, then go to a higher authority 
and in the lands that we live in, that higher authority is going to be a respected, the most respected Shaykh of the community so that nobody can impugn this person, a person who is respected and preferably of the same ethnicity as you are so that he can know best how to deal with uh, the culture that, that you are coming from. And it is permissible in this case, if the Shaykh feels so, because again, to conclude on this point, I am not saying your particular situation because I cannot verify, I am saying, if what you say is correct, and that can only be verified by somebody who speaks to all the parties concerned, I personally would not have a problem taking away the wali, the wilaya of a person in this case, and handing it over to somebody else such as you in this case. But that can only be done by somebody who knows the situation personally. And in the end, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Jazakumullahu khayran. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. وَاذْكُرُوا اللَّهَ فِي أَيَّامٍ مَعْدُودَاتٍ فَمَنْ تَعَجَّلَ فِي يَوْمَيْنِ فَلَا إِثْمَ عَلَيْهِ وَمَنْ تَأَخَّرَ فَلَا إِثْمَ عَلَيْهِ لِمَنِ اتَّقَى وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ وَاعْلَمُوا أَنَّكُمْ إِلَيْهِ تُحْشَرُونَ